Welcome to the SLP Happy Hour podcast. I'm Sarah, a private practice SLP in Oregon, a materials designer as SLP Happy Hour on Teachers Pay Teachers, and a speaker on burnout. You can find me at slphappyhour.com or on Instagram as SLP Happy Hour. I'm Jess. I'm a private practice SLP in Massachusetts. I see clients in their homes and I specialize in Gestalt language processing and supporting neurodivergent clients. You can find me posting all about it on Instagram as Gemma June SLP, and I'm also a member of the Meaningful Speech team, so you might see me on that account from time to time as well. And if you're a regular listener, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to help other SLPs, SLPAs, and students find the podcast. You can also connect with what's happening with SLP Happy Hour, as well as receiving lesson ideas by signing up for a monthly or so updates at slphappyhour.com forward slash newsletter. Up today, I'll be talking about what's happening in our speech rooms, as well as we will go through levels one through three of Gestalt language processing with student examples. So let's get to that first. So working with Gestalt language processors is something Jessica and I both do in our private practices. And Jessica makes some great infographics and carousels as Gemma June SLP on Instagram about this topic. So let's go through stages one through three today, and stages four through six are advanced grammar, so we're going to focus on one to three. So let's start with what is GLP-1 and what might we see in someone who's at this stage? So let's start with, so Gestalt language processing is one of two ways that children develop language. It is a completely normal and natural way for children to develop language, despite what you may have been told, what you may have seen online. Gestalt language processors develop language in predictable stages, and these are outlined in what's called the Natural Language Acquisition Framework, which was created by Marge Blanc in 2012. There are six stages, but we'll cover the earlier ones today. So children start by acquiring language in whole chunks. These can be as short as a single word or as long as an entire movie. And they're often referred to as script or scripting, but they really are so much more than that. These chunks are intonationally defined and hold a larger meaning for the child. They're usually tied to an emotional or meaningful experience. And something to note is that these gestalts are often not literal. They come from their environment, such as TV shows, books, songs, communication partners, So I'm going to give you an example from one of my clients who loves Peppa Pig. I'm sure anybody working with Gestalt language processors can relate or has had a client who loves Peppa Pig. So this client, they sing jumping up and down in muddy puddles to express joy. They use this in various contexts to indicate joy. And it's not always you. It's not just used when they're jumping up and down or literally jumping up and down in muddy puddles. So to someone unfamiliar with the child or their interests or their language exposure or unfamiliar with Gestalt language processing, they might be very confused by this. It seems out of context, but to the child, it is very in context. They picked up this chunk while they were watching Peppa Pig, and to them, that was emotional, it was meaningful, and they picked it up to have a larger meaning of sharing joy. So at this stage, our goal is to increase the amount of mitigable gestalts. So that means easy to mix and match gestalts so that the child has an increased amount and an increased variety 
of gestalts. So we want to have them to have easy to mix and match, match gestalts for different communicative functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and an example of that I just saw this week was uh, a boy I work with who loves Thomas the Train. So he fell down and he said, Thomas the Train fell off the track and into... It was something like a muddy puddle and into the mud. And it was like, it's pretty long. And like, but like you said, it's not meant to be taken literally. Like he's not Thomas the train and he doesn't actually think he fell off the track. He's just like, what's something similar? So uh, we can, you know, reflect back to them. We can acknowledge the gestalt and reflect back to them. Like what we think the actual meaning was to try to, again, give them more words so that they can find the gestalts they need when they need them. Does that make, is that fair enough? Absolutely. And our gestalt language, see, like that is so creative. I love hearing examples of children's gestalts because the way that they're able to find things uh, to communicate what, you know, communicate what they're trying to, or to say what they're trying to communicate is just so creative and so interesting to me. And it's one of the reasons I just love working with gestalt language processors. Yeah, it just makes sense. Once you understand the framework, it just makes sense what these kids are doing, doesn't it? A hundred percent. And can you walk me through an example session for GLP-1? So of course, not all lessons are the same. And of course, it depends on the child, their age and their interests. But it's helpful to hear lesson ideas and examples. Definitely. So all of my sessions are child-led. And again, I see clients in their homes. So I will often bring a very big bag with various items and toys. And I switch out what I bring based on child's interests. And I go into homes, I leave the bag out, I let the child know that there are items in there and they're free to check it out if they want to. Sometimes I take items out as suggestions, but I never direct what we do. Sometimes we use what I bring, sometimes we use what they have in the home. I just, I follow their lead and I incorporate those stage one mitigable gestalt models naturally. Um, And so thinking of an example from last week, I brought an iPad with me as I always do. I brought a felt house, a few books and construction paper. And this particular client pulled out the iPad. So I followed their lead. They opened up the My Play Home Plus app, which is a really cool interactive playhouse app. And it has all different interactive places that you can go into, like a school, a home, a hospital, a shopping mall, just to name a few. And while we played, I just modeled mitigable gestalts, such as it's time to go home when they would bring the characters into the home. Let's get a snack when the characters were in places like the kitchen or the food court. Jumping is the best when characters were jumping on the trampoline. I'm so tired when the characters were sleeping or this is so much fun while we just to express shared joy while we were playing. So all of these models are for various communication functions and all of them are really great examples of models that are easy to mix and match. So they're, they're easily mitigable gestalts. Yeah. So I have a student and when we were, um, GLP one, I did telepractice into his home and he, really like Humpty Dumpty. So there were really only two activities that we could do that he was happy with at the time. 
uh, which was watching YouTube videos of Humpty Dumpty, the rhyme or the song, and then taking the two potato head dolls and pushing them off a box or couch to watch them fall. And then sometimes reciting Humpty Dumpty while doing that. So again, at this stage, we're just trying to get more gestalts, more words and phrases. You can have like a single word gestalt as well. So um, I made a presentation in Canva with him. You could do the same in Google Slides with the Humpty Dumpty routine where I could add in some gestalts and he could see his favorite character, Humpty Dumpty. And it just got us more mileage with that since, to be honest, there were only so many things I could do with watching the same song over and over. So we did that and we would recite the rhyme together and Potato Head would say, help me or something like that. So uh, looking at his communication functions, he was doing a lot of requesting, but by color name. So it was hard to tell what he wanted. So he might say purple and we didn't know what he wanted that was purple. So um, things I modeled were help me. So that was both in the Humpty Dumpty songs and play. Oh no, when Humpty fell, let's play Humpty Dumpty because it was really important to him. Um, let's do something different. And we did it. He learned we did it first. And he likes to say it at the end of songs, which it's one of his favorite things to say. And it's really sweet. He'll also now say something different at times. Uh, so he's progressed beyond GLP level one, but this is where we were at stage one. Um, and he also started saying, help me, please, after we'd done just a few sessions modeling, help me, because I think please is what parents were modeling at home, which is great. So looking at this session, I was really trying to target as many communicative functions as I could within those limited <laughs> activities that he enjoyed and to really try to get in some of those early gestalts. So moving on to stage two, what does stage two look like? So in stage two, a gestalt language processor will start to mix and match their stage one gestalts. They will also trim down those longer gestalts. So that second part, so that trimming down of gestalts, this isn't always touched on, but it's really important to note that this is a part of stage two as well. So based on the example that I gave earlier from my client in stage one who had the gestalt jumping up and down in muddy puddles, which is one that I love so much, um, in stage two, they might trim it down to just jumping up and down. Or some of those examples that I gave from my session when we were using that My Play Home Plus app might be mixed and matched. So the example, it's time to go home, might be mixed and matched with let's get a snack and might turn into let's go home or let's get or it's time to snack. They're still not recognizing each individual word as a unit of meeting, but they're starting to learn that they can mix and match their gestalts. So sticking with my example of the My Play Home app, I would model these mitigations during those natural child-led activities and play using the gestalts that I know the child is using. So here in stage two, that mitigating gestalts or mix and matching parts of one phrase to another, uh, there's something that I keep running into that I wanted to ask you about, Jessica. I'm curious if you see this too, but uh, when kids have other therapies, they often learn I want fill in the blank to request and very structured compliance-based activities, which isn't learning. That's just memorization. So it can feel really frustrating because that pattern can take so long to break. It seems like kids get stuck there. Um, 
But the student who I was talking about with Potato Head did start to mix and match. So some level two, but it was all I want for a very long time. So he would say things like, I want song. I want no, which meant like, I don't want it. I want you do it. And I didn't model these, but it was nice to see him progressing into some level two really seamlessly once he had enough gestalts, because in stage one, we're working on learning, you know, getting more gestalts. But that I want lasted a very, very long time because it was over promoted and over rewarded in other therapies. And I found that really frustrating. He didn't have very many communicative functions. He couldn't reject. He couldn't accept. He couldn't specify anything. But he knew that if he added I want and made a request, he might get a snack or a sticker or iPad time. So I'm going to step off my soapbox now and let you talk. But I think this is an example of when some maybe well-meaning professionals who don't know about Gestalt language development are trying to provide communication instruction, sometimes that can get kids stuck. So have you seen this? Oh, yeah. So I've seen this many times. I have a lot of older clients who have had years of other therapies that treated them as disordered analytic language processors, and they are very stuck using single words from a huge focus on labeling goals or using rote phrases like you said, I want, I see more for reoccurrence. Like, um, yeah, so like those ones that you noted, rote phrases like this aren't how any child naturally acquires and uses language. They also won't give children a variety of models to work with to move into those later stages of self-generated language. So my biggest piece of advice for anybody working with children who are stuck using these rote phrases is to acknowledge them. So we always want to acknowledge them. We never ever want to ignore them, but take a step back from any adult models. So go back to building rapport, go back to those foundational things, building rapport, building connection, trust, and safety. And once these children trust you, they will trust your language models and they will start to pick those language models up, which it sounds like that's exactly what you did, Sarah. You took the time to wait until they were ready and kept sticking to those natural models instead of those rote phrases. Yeah, I I didn't know what to do at the time, uh, but I like that advice to take a break from adult models to really work on the relationship. And to be honest, I doubted myself during that time because we really were stuck at I want for so long. And I was like, what am I doing? Will this Gestalt stuff work? And it totally did. But it took some time to unlearn those rote phrases that were being rewarded. So moving on, we did make it. Actually, we haven't made it to stage three for the student that I've shared. But can you share about what stage three can look like? Yes. So stage three is a really exciting stage. Sometimes it's referred to as a magic stage. So this is when children are finally recognizing those single words as units and they are self-generating their own language. So they break down those earlier gestalts and they break those down into single words. 
they start to understand that these single words can be combined together using semantic relationships, and they start to use these single words to create new two-word noun combinations based on those semantic relationships. So when we're supporting language at stage three, we're encouraging children to combine these single words into combinations such as noun plus noun, noun plus ad adjective, noun plus location combinations based on what's in their environment. So the stage is very referential. So we might point at things that are directly in our environment that we can see. And at this point, we're not concerned about word order. We're not concerned about grammar. So I'll give you an example of this. So my example from the past two stages, which was jumping up and down in muddy puddles, um, we, let's say we're watching Peppa Pig on YouTube and the child is breaking down their previous gestalt, uh, the jumping up and down in muddy puddles, and they're breaking it down when we're watching that video. So they might then uh, refer to the video and just say puddles. And then they might start to mix and match with other nouns. So they might say puddles, boots, or an adjective, puddles, big. Um, so yeah, so that's an example of what stage three looks like. That's great. And there are six stages we talked about, you know, stages four, five, and six are advanced grammar. And I actually don't have any kids who are stage six or stage three, so I don't have an example for this one. But I'm glad that you shared those examples today, Jessica, those were really helpful. And I loved the way you described those stages. It was really clear. So next up is a lesson gone wrong here at the SLP Happy Hour podcast. We try to be as honest as possible, both when things go well and when they go not so well. So here's my lesson gone wrong. And this is actually a series of lessons gone wrong. So this isn't a cute or interesting story particularly. But here it is. I had a student who used AAC and we were not making progress. He had a lot of stimming behaviors and it, his behaviors were really also communicating to me that I was getting in the way of his stimming behaviors and he didn't want me around. And I do know a lot of sensory strategies. I've had a lot of training in that area, but nothing I did was working. Then he started pinching me so... I, I was just like, you know what, this is a kid who's in fight or flight mode. He can't learn in this state. We need to do something different. So I absolutely felt like a failure. I felt a lot of guilt at the time. And it took me a long time to figure out what to recommend to the family. So we did a couple things. One is we took a six-week break of speech therapy. And I asked them to also take a break from other therapies. This helped him a lot. And I explained he needs more time in his schedule for play and rest and to do these behaviors that are relaxing for him uh, because I'm concerned that he's not getting enough of that sensory stimulation or of what leisure time looks like for him, which was these stimming behaviors. So at this point, I didn't know what else to do. Uh, so as we took the six week break, I reached out to a, a private practice occupational therapist in my area with an indoor gym space and we decided to co-treat with him. So he would have a bigger area to run around in. He'd have more opportunities for movement. And I would also be able to benefit from the OT's expertise because there were a lot of sensory things going on. So we, after the six weeks, we started doing that. So I would say that I still haven't figured out the best way to reach him, but this 
co-treat with an occupational therapist is so beneficial for him. He can climb, he can jump, he can roll, he can slide, he can swing. Um, Language-wise, I would guess that he has 40 to 50 phrases. He's gestalt language processor. Um, if I do a language sample, he's mostly GLP-1 with some mix and matching, so some stage two gestalts. And I wanted to share this story because I've felt bad about working with him for most of the time I've worked with him. Um, and I wanted to just encourage any SLP listening that if you have a kid that you're struggling with, or you feel like a complete imposter, or it's just not working, that that happens. I've been there, I'm there right now, and it's okay to change things. And I do realize that I'm in private practice, so I have a lot of freedom, but to be honest, I was really afraid of this parent's reaction when I asked for that six week break. I thought they would judge me for not being a good SLP. And also I had no plan of what I was gonna do next. So I figured out the OT co-treats, which are pretty successful right now. But at the time when I said, let's take a break, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do next. And when it comes to the schools, when I worked in the schools as a school employee, I had to be flexible as well. And I've learned that direct service sometimes isn't the best service for all learners. Sometimes we need to train communication partners or Look for communication opportunities during the day to be implemented by other staff to send written communication or resources home. There are so many ways to support students beyond direct one-on-one -on -one therapy, beyond like pull-out direct therapy in a speech room, and it has to be individualized. We have to ask, what does this kid need? And if a kid is in fight or flight, we can try all the sensory strategies in the world, but sometimes... What they really need is time to rest, be at home, and play in a way that works for them. So I'm still thinking a lot about this child now. I want to make sure to plan for some therapeutic breaks where he's not in any therapies so he can be a kid and have more free time. But I haven't figured out how to structure that yet. I think that's an incredibly important story to share. I think it's important to for SLPs to know that it's okay to take breaks. It's okay to not know and let parents know that we need to figure it out. Um, I'm really happy that you shared that. And yeah, I have uh, I have some, many examples of sessions or, or things gone wrong, but I'll share an overall general theme of my sessions. So before I started using a child-led approach to therapy, um, I have many examples. So ever since getting into the field, I have mainly worked with neurodivergent clients. I spent so much time in these sessions that made me feel like I was not cut out for this profession. Um, I used compliance-based strategies such as sticker reward stickers and reward charts, and I didn't think to even incorporate my child's interests other than using them as rewards. So I... <laughs> Honestly, and when I say this, people are shocked, but I planned my sessions down to the minute, like what I was going to do from this time to this time. Um, that's what I was taught in grad school, um, and it's really all I knew. And my clients were not engaged. They often refused anything that I planned, and they just didn't want to be there. And honestly, neither did I. Um, my sessions were really more power struggles, and sometimes we would get 
nothing done because I wouldn't back down and they wouldn't either. Um, It really never felt right for me to do this, but it's what I was taught to do in grad school and in my clinical fellowship year. And I just genuinely did not know that there were better ways. Um, I debated leaving the field soon into my career because of this, Um, but I decided in a last ditch effort to just do some research. Um, And that's actually how I came across Alex Zakos and Meaningful Speech. And I discovered Gestalt language processing and child-led therapy and everything changed for me. So really all of this to say, if you're ever feeling like this field isn't for you, I've been there, you're not alone. Um, If you've used compliance-based strategies, so did I. If your clients seem like they don't want to be there or you're having trouble engaging them, mine did too, and it's okay to change. We're all doing the best with the information that we have until we learn better ways. Um, I've truly never loved my job more than I do now with making these changes to child-led therapy and supporting Gestalt language processors um, and using the NLA framework. And it's so interesting that I I did the same, you know, compliance-based strategies and um, really structured sessions and like discrete trials and things like that. And I remember thinking, you know, if I had my own private practice, I wouldn't see kids with autism, which is hilarious because it's like most of what I do now. And it was because I was like, these kids are hard. And the problem was not the children. The problem was me. (laughs) Yeah, it's me. Mm -hmm. And letting the child lead um, can be so powerful. So that's what we're doing now. We're trying to follow the child's lead, do what the child is interested in, change up therapies when they aren't working. And remind yourself it's okay to take a break from therapy. Sometimes kids need it. Sometimes families need it. Sometimes they both need it. It all starts with us. It's nothing that the child is doing. All these changes start there. All these changes need to happen within us. The child's doing everything that they're supposed to do. So that's it for this episode of the SLP Happy Hour podcast, where we discussed GLP levels one through three with some examples, as well as a discussion about lessons gone wrong specifically uh, clinician-led or compliance-based speech therapy activities and how things have changed as we've worked on following a child's lead. Remember, we are all learning. Be gentle with yourself. And remember, sometimes doing it the quote-unquote wrong way is a step towards getting it right, right? We do something and we're like, that didn't work. Okay, what else is there? So be gentle with yourself as you learn new things. And that's it for this episode of the SLP Happy Hour podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening in as much as we enjoyed recording it. Until next time.